The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness, has, its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went abroad and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and they cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and then we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. O Lord, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of God. I would love it if you could keep Jonah open. Jonah chapter 1, page 927. And can I just add my welcome to, to Jonathan's. If this is your first time here, a very, very warm welcome uh, to St. John's. I should say we don't normally get people up and to stand up here and then grill them. That's not normal. So if you're thinking, I'm never going to come again, just in case they quiz me on what happened two weeks before, we will never do that uh, to you, I, I promise. Um, or at least I won't. I, I can't vouch for Jonathan. Um, he's a loose cannon. We don't know what he'll do. Um, please keep Jonah chapter 1 open. And uh, you might find a little mint sheet. There isn't really much on it, but um, that might help you <laughs> later on uh, as we look at this text. Well, shall we pray uh, for God's help? Father, we've just sung, May they forget the channel and see only him. And that's uh, my prayer tonight, Father. Would people not think of me? And my words, but would they think so much of you? Please, Father, would all of us, would our eyes be lifted to the man Christ Jesus and his salvation for us? In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to imagine, if you can imagine it, that a teenager goes to his local library. Okay, it's quite hard to imagine, but bear with me. Imagine he picks up a copy of Animal Farm by George Orwell. Now, he, he, he loves this book. He reads it cover to cover, and he's, he's quite enamored with it. It uh, has a zany plot. It has talking animals. And above all, it is mercifully short. Very, very short book. So our teenager uh, thoroughly enjoys it. Uh, 
But the problem with this particular teenager is that he knows nothing about the events of the 20th century. He knows nothing about the rise of communism and the fears surrounding it. And so if you were this teenager's parent, you'll be be delighted that uh, he enjoyed, or she, uh, enjoyed uh, Animal Farm. But you'll be concerned, wouldn't you, that he's kind of missed the point of the book. All of that biting satire would be entirely lost on our unwitting teenager. Now, as we approach this book of Jonah, I guess that's, I come with a, with a similar fear. We, we might be very familiar with this book since we've been children. We, we have a plot in this story which is larger than life. We have a, a great city, Nineveh, who has done great evil. It, there is a great storm, and later on we'll see there is a great fish. Larger than life plot. And also you might know that we have a, a, a hilarious bunch of characters where all of the normal roles are completely switched. So all of the goodies, Jonah, they act like baddies. And all of the baddies act like goodies. And it's all very, done very well to comic effect. Jonah in particular is a thoroughly unlikable character. As you read this book, he's, he's full of um, pious theology. But actually, he's just irritating and whining, and he's always doing everything wrong. I, I imagine if they were going to make a film of this book, Alan Rickman would be the man to cast as Jonah, surely. So imagine that uh, Jonah's topsy-turvy tale, you can imagine it would be a firm favourite around the campfires of Israel. You can imagine the, the children there around the fire, giggling, uproar, at the misadventures of this hopeless, hopeless prophet. But the adults there, the adults who knew something of the history, who knew something of the reason why this book was written, They might be laughing along with the children, but I suspect also they would be having grieving hearts. Because like Animal Farm, this book of Jonah, it is a biting satire. It is real history, but it is a black mirror. And this black mirror is being held up to the face of God's people to show them that we're not all that pretty. So tonight, what I wish us to do is just to sit back and enjoy this story. It is a funny story, and I hope you'll laugh a bit more than they did in the morning, uh, because uh, it really is a hilarious book. But at the very end of uh, tonight, I hope to draw out some some practical lessons for us. So do sit in there, hold in there, um, for for what this might mean for us. Let's make a start. Look down to, to verse one, if you would. Let's dive in. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now this is a fairly classic opening for a prophet in the Old Testament. This this phrase comes around 84 times. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah. And one by one by one, each of these prophets hop up and go. What does Jonah do? Does he follow the convention? Not a chance. Look down to verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. What's so funny here isn't so much that Jonah breaks the prophetic convention, but that he does so in the most spectacular way possible. 
So God says go to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles in that direction. And what does he do? He heads for Tarshish, which is in Spain, 2,500 miles in that direction. What's more, he goes there by sea. Now, you might know, Israelites were terrified of the water. It was their, like, number one fear. But Jonah is desperate enough to flee the Lord across the Mediterranean. The uh, original language, it reveals even more of the, the comic disobedience. God says, get up and call on Nineveh. But Jonah goes down to Joppa, down to Tarshish, down into the boat, down to sleep, and then at the end of the story, plop down into the water. So at the end of verse 3, we're begging the question, why? Why is Jonah running from such a clear command? So we need to understand a little bit what's going on in the history here. At this point in time, Assyria was kind of the, the big superpower of the day. And Nineveh was their fortress capital, which made Nineveh really Israel's number one enemy. Now that might make you kind of think, well, surely Jonah would want a chance to preach against Nineveh, against the enemy. Surely that would be what he'd want to do. And in fact, up to this point, that's exactly what Jonah's been doing. If Later on, if you go and read 2 Kings chapter 14, you read how Jonah prophesies that Israel are going to take some land back off the enemy, back off Syria. Their, their borders are going to be extended. And this would have been a national success story. You can imagine Jonah being lifted up onto the shoulders of people. He would have been the poster boy of this successful campaign. But now... He's not so keen to preach against Nineveh, is he? Why not? Well, it might be because now he's actually expected to go there. Here is a city which is renowned for their idolatry, renowned for their wickedness, and renowned for their brutality. So if you pop down over half turn, perhaps, and visit the British Museum, you can see a big relief there describing what the Ninevites did to their enemies. There's a particular portion which describes how the Ninevites would take their enemy nobles, people like Jonah, and then peel the skin off them while they're still alive, and then hang those skins on the city walls as a warning to everyone else. Maybe Jonah caught wind of this, and you might think that's a pretty good reason to peg it in the opposite direction. A preaching tour of Nineveh. It just sounds crazy, like, like a New York Jew in 1941 heading to Nazi Berlin to have a chat with Hitler. It's nuts, surely. Is that the reason why Jonah ran? Was he afraid of death? Was he afraid of failure? Well, you might be excused for thinking that. But at the very end of the book of Jonah, we're actually given the real reason. So apologies for the spoilers. We're going to flip right to the end of chapter 4, to the beginning of chapter 4, just verse 2. And uh, notice here the reason why Jonah ran. Chapter 4, verse 2. He, this Jonah, prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah ran, not because he feared failure and death. He ran because he feared 
success. Jonah would rather die than have God show compassion to those Ninevites. You see, Jonah wasn't the only prophet around at this time. Amos and Hosea, they'd been around for donkey's years in Israel doing their thing. And they'd been exposing carefully to God's people their own idolatry, their own wickedness, their own brutality. And these prophets, they warned that unless Israel repented, then their number one enemy, Assyria, would come and destroy them. So Jonah doesn't want to preach to Nineveh. Because he knew that if they repented, then it would be the end of Israel. And he would be remembered as the prophet who scored the ultimate own goal, rather than the poster boy of success. So what should God do to this disobedient prophet and and the nation he represents? Should God just splat him and and, and move on to someone else? Well, incredibly, he doesn't do that. No, No, God wishes to win Jonah around to his way of thinking. And through him, he wants to help Israel to come to her senses. So as we return now to our true but comical story, I want you to keep these these three questions in mind. I've put them on your sheets if if, if it's helpful to you. But as we read this story, let's ask these questions. Who are the idolaters in this passage? Who are they? Who are the worshippers? Who are the people who fear the Lord? And who is it whom God is powerful enough to save? Keep those questions in your head and let's, let's carry on with our story and, and see what happens. You might remember Jonah's just arrived at the sunny seaside port of Joppa. You can imagine the seagulls flying overhead. You can imagine that the smell of the sea air on his nostrils. Jonah would have thought he's free. And having that sense of freedom, he buys his uh, one-way ticket, cruises across the Mediterranean. He hops on a boat and he thinks, finally, he has escaped God's reach. But then verse 4 happens. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. You can picture the scene. The voyage is underway. It seems like smooth sailing, but then suddenly God begins hurling his might against the ship, throwing wave after wave at this little boat. The wind is lashing, the waves are crashing, and slowly you can hear the wood starting to to splinter and crack. And these seasoned sailors, they've been been sailing these seas for years, but they're, they're terrified, terrified. And they start to panic, half of them are on their knees, bowing down to the little wooden idols, Poseidon or whoever. The other half are frantically throwing all their cargo overboard, trying to lighten the ship, desperate to do something. So what does Jonah do? What does the prophet of God do? Well, of course, upon seeing this desperate situation, Jonah's cut to the heart. He he starts to lend a hand on deck. He helps the sailors out. He he begins telling the sailors to abandon their gods and, and turn to the living God. Um, No, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. He doesn't do any of that. Sorry, verse 5, he he falls asleep. He goes downstairs, finds a comfy place, and falls asleep. Cue roars of laughter from the children around the campfire. What a stupid prophet. And that's pretty much what the captain says in verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, 
and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we won't perish. Now, at this point, Jonah's getting a severe case of deja vu. I don't know if you ever get deja vu, but this is a bad case of it. The captain's command to get up and call is word for word identical to God's command earlier on to get up and call on Nineveh. So upon hearing this this oral cue, the prophet heeds the captain's wisdom. He gets down his knees and and Jonah, he begins to pray to the Lord for salvation. No, no, I'm sorry, I got that wrong too. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't pray. His mouth stays completely shut. He ignores the captain. Verse 7, what happens? Well, then the sailors said to each other, well, come, let's cast lots and find out who's responsible for this calamity. And at this point, Jonah comes clean. He puts his hand up and says, guys, there's no need for that, really. I'm I'm the one to blame here. I'm the guilty party. No need to draw lots. No, no, I'm sorry, he doesn't do that. No, no, Jonah stays quiet once again. Perhaps you can imagine him sort of slinking silently away into a corner, hoping against hope that his lot won't be drawn. But of course it is. And so in verse 8, they ask him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now, perhaps Jonah expected the sailors to be really impressed at this theologically spot on statement of faith. You can't fault his theology here. He probably didn't, he probably didn't expect their reaction in verse 10. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? These guys, they might have been ignorant pagan sailors, but they know stupidity when they hear it. Why on earth are you trying to escape the God who made the sea by boat? It's stupid. See, Jonah says he fears the Lord. He says he worships the Lord. But in his heart, he's kind of domesticated him. He's treating him like Israel's local deity, whose reach is sort of limited to to the borders of their own land. He's treating God like a lucky charm, which is there for Israel, but not for anyone else. I'm a Hebrew, he says, first and foremost. That's who he is, first and foremost. I'm a Hebrew. His national identity means more to him than his God. Jonah's hypocrisy, well, it does nothing to steal God's anger. Look at verse 11. The sea is getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now I wonder what you make of this. I think some of our children's books, sometimes they sort of optimistically suggest that this is Jonah's moment of repentance. That now suddenly Jonah has has a change of heart and now he wants to show compassion to these poor pagan sailors. Is that what's going on here? Well, given what we've seen of Jonah's character, I wouldn't bet on it. If this is Jonah repenting, 
Well, he seems to then unrepent in chapters 3 and 4. Uh, three times, in fact, in chapter 4, Jonah declared he would rather die, die, than see Nineveh saved. So I think when viewed in the light of the whole book, Jonah's offer here to the sailors, it isn't so much out of a desire to show compassion to the pagan sailors. Rather, it is yet another attempt to stop God's compassion reaching Nineveh. Quite rightly, I think, the sailors want nothing to do with this suicide plan. Look down at verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord. O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done of you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this... The men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. We're back at the campfire and no doubt the children are still giggling at the fact the sailors thought Jonah's being an innocent man before dumping him somewhat unceremoniously into the sea. They're still giggling about that but no doubt the adults laughing too but cut to the heart. Because this satire would have exposed their hearts bare. This is a black mirror being held up to their faces. And what they see isn't pretty. Remember those questions we're asking earlier on. Let's return to them now and see what we get from them. Who are the idolaters here? Who are they? Is it the pagan sailors with their little gods? Well, yes. But it is Jonah's idolatry which is primarily on display here, isn't it? And the nation he represents, Israel, is no different. At this time, Israel, they treated their national identity as Hebrews a bit like a get-out-of-jail-free card. They waved around the historic status, thinking that God would just turn a blind eye to their own sin. And they thought their, their heritage meant they kind of had a monopoly on grace. And so they thought they had a right to play God and say who was and who wasn't deserving of God's compassion. Israel are the idolaters here. And they don't recognize it. But second question, well, who worships, who who fears the Lord in this passage? Well, of course, in verse 9, Jonah says he does. But it is the sailors and not Jonah who end up turning from their idols. It is the sailors and not Jonah who in the end open their mouths in prayer to God. Jonah never prays. It is the sailors, not Jonah, who in verse 16 greatly fear the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. God's people were supposed to be a light to the nations. But at this point, they're just as guilty as the pagans next door. And yet they have the audacity to think that God's grace isn't for them. Only for them. Well, who is God powerful to save? Well, Jonah thought that God's power was kind of limited to the land of Israel. That's why he tried to run away. He thought that God was limited to their land. But this story shows that God's might, God's reach, extends to the whole earth. He is the creator God. 
You can't run from the creator. You can't run from him. So Israel, they might have fled from their mission to the nations. But God hasn't given up on that mission. And here we are. Despite Jonah's best efforts, a whole boatload of pagan sailors come to know him as the true God. And ironically, the prophet of Israel is thrown into the waters of judgment. What a reversal. What a switch. Before I sit down, what I hope to do is, if you're up for this, is for me to sort of turn this black mirror on us for a moment. It's very easy to laugh at Jonah and his stupidity, but actually I think we need to take a good look at at it ourselves. Um, I think we'll keep returning to some of these themes in coming weeks, so don't worry if um, there's some things we, we move over, but... I wonder if there's a few questions on our sheet which might help us sort of think about this passage. The first one is this. Friends, do you recognise your own idols? Do you recognise your own idols? I found uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, really helpful on this. He, He says this. The word idols, they might conjure up images of primitive people bowing down to bits of wood. But an idol is anything we consider more important than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. I think it's really easy to sort of look at other people, and often we talk about other people and saying, I know what they're living for, I know what their idol is. Very easy to look at others, isn't it? Maybe perhaps you've done that. But I think as Jonah discovered here, much harder to see yourself and your own idols. Much harder. So here am I, I'm standing here, and... I recognise there's a danger for me to idolise being a, a church minister. I think I can very easily, as we're saying, I think it was Ubi saying earlier on, be more concerned about what people think of me, what's my proverbial dog collar on, than whether I've actually been faithful to God. I'm getting my identity from what you think of me rather than what God thinks of me. You know, like Jane, I wonder if sometimes I want to be that poster boy of success rather than the bearer of difficult news. That, that's me, that's, that's an idol for me. But what about you? Perhaps um, it's your career um, and success in your career. The need for wealth, the need for security, uh, the need to be seen, to be recognised, to be appreciated, to be loved. Perhaps that, that desire kind of displaces everything else in your life. Maybe your idol is your family and what they think of you. Maybe that matters more to you than, than God. And on the weekend away, Glenn Harrison sort of mentioned in passing how common it was for even grown adults still to labour under the burden of, of parents' expectations. Very common, isn't it? And then ironically, we, we then unwittingly pass on that burden to our own children. Like a bit like a, a household god passing it on to the next generation. Perhaps family is your idol. Or maybe it's your religion. I mean, here we are, we're in church, and perhaps coming on a Sunday is just a cultural norm. It's something you do, you recite the creed, we say the prayers. But we're fooling ourselves if we think that simply by being here and wearing this label as churchgoer, God is suddenly, we're in a better position with him. Friends, do you know where your idols are? I was chatting with Hannah earlier on, and she was saying, why don't you ask people to, to talk with someone they know well? perhaps a spouse or perhaps someone who knows you very well, because often they will be able to see what you're living for better than you can. Does that make sense? 
Why not ask someone who knows you, can be honest with you about that? What are your idols? Do you recognize them? But secondly, do you see their impotence, their powerlessness? The thing with idols is they always leave us disappointed, don't they? They always leave us wanting more. Even if they're really, even if they're good things, like family, they never satisfy, they never deliver. And yet, what do we do? We, we kind of cling to them like, like those sailors clung to their little idols in the storm, hoping against hope that they're going to give us what we need, what we want. Friends, have you ever considered how insulting that is to our Creator? deriving our identity from from these things instead of him. Uh, Looking for life and salvation in career or relationship rather than for our living God. Friends, just as much as the characters in this story, we deserve to face that storm of God's fair and righteous anger. But before this storm hits, on the day when we'll stand before him in judgment, I think we need to learn the lessons the sailors learned here. Your idols, whether they're educational or wealth or status or influence, your idols, they they cannot save you on that day. Dropping cargo by being religious or by giving things up, they can't save you. Rowing against the storm like these sailors try and do, by being better, trying harder, it won't save you. Well, what will save? Well, finally, this last question. Do you trust in the prophet? And by the prophet, please don't misunderstand me. I do not mean Jonah. Forget him. He's, he's utterly useless. He can't, he can't do anything for you. The prophet, I mean, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has a heart for the nations, has a heart for us Gentiles, for us to be saved. There's a very intriguing detail in Mark's gospel in chapter 4. You might know the scene. Um, there's a, a, the disciples, they find themselves in the midst of a powerful storm. The wind is way, raging against this tiny little boat and they're terrified. They're, they're experienced sailors and they're terrified. And they cry out, Lord, don't you care? And what is Jesus doing? Do you remember? He's asleep on a cushion in the boat. We're meant to make the link between this story and Jonah 1. Here, Jesus, here is a greater prophet. Because unlike Jonah, he was a truly innocent man. Unlike Jonah, he was a man who actually desired to see the Gentiles saved. Unlike Jonah, he was a man who actually had the power to calm the storm of God's anger. And so when Jesus went to the cross, if you like, he willingly hurled himself into those waters of God's anger so that we might enjoy the peace, the calm waters of knowing him. Stand your idol up against Jesus. Stand them up against each other. Is there anything that your idols claim to be able to give you that Christ will not give you abundantly? Identity, purpose, meaning, security. Your idols promise all those things, but only Christ can deliver. And he delivered in full as he threw himself into the water upon the cross. Friends, our God is powerful to save. He can save anyone. And if this story teaches us anything, it's that his reach and his power, it extends even to you. 
So you might be running from God for a long while, a bit like Jonah, getting nowhere, a bit like Jonah. Well, tonight would be a great night to leave your idols behind and run to a greater prophet, a prophet who can actually save. One might pray. Father, we lament our hypocrisy. We see ourselves in Jonah so much. Father, help us to identify those things which we derive our purpose and identity and salvation in that are found outside of you. Help us to throw ourselves upon your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to throw our lot in with him. And we pray, Father, we'll be liberated and, and experience the calm waters of knowing you this day and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.